So this morning, we're going to be in Romans chapter 2. title of today's message is The Replacements. And last week, we had kind of a more difficult sermon. Well, I mean, a difficult sermon is one that kind of really pounds us a little bit and, and, and makes us, um, I don't want to say feel guilty, but convicting, a convicting sermon of what will happen when people turn their backs on genuine faith in Jesus Christ. If you're not here, I'd actually encourage you to listen to the podcast of it because it was very um, prophetic in a way that it really describes what's going on in our world today. This morning, I want to turn the uh, camera, if you will, a little bit more inward. We looked at how the world was last week. Now I want to talk and look at how people of faith can fall into certain traps that will lead us away from a pure and unadulterated relationship with God. So let me start by asking a question. How many football fans do we have in here? Anybody? Everybody here was old enough. <laughs> I have to be careful. Uh, everybody here was old enough that you might remember the 1987 NFL season and what it was um, um, famous for. Anybody? What's that? Oh, Fridge Perry, but not him. I love, I love the 85 Bears. I used to be a Bears fan before I got saved. Um, you remember the, in 1987, we had the replacement players. The NFL and the players' unions couldn't decide on a contract. So they went back and forth. They fought it in the media. They fought it in the newspapers. They went back and forth. Finally, the player said, we're going on strike, and you won't have a football season. They tried to, to kind of um, bully the NFL to, um, you know, secede to their um, demands. So they, the league said, and the, play, and the owner said, well, go ahead, go on strike. We'll just hire a new team. And they did do that. They hired all new players for all the teams. And let's be frank, there are people who make it to the NFL, they get there because they are really, really, really good at that one thing, right? They are the top in the world at whatever their position is, whether it's guarding, whether it's catching, whether it's running, whether it's throwing, kicking, whatever it is, they are the best. Now the men that they chose had decent college careers, but nothing that would get them to the big show. So these games that would go on were full of mistakes. They were full of fumbles. They were full of turnovers. Or they were full of they're on the 40-yard line and they don't move on any series. They just keep going a yard back and forth and nothing really was happening. Well, public pressure began to mount and sooner or later the NFL and the, and the owners caved and, um, and all those guys were fired and they brought the real players back in time for the playoffs. And what we can learn from this lesson in our society was that sometimes there's nothing like the best. Well, God kind of feels the same way. He doesn't kind of feel the same way. He does feel the same way. He set before us a plan of salvation. He set before us one way to get into a relationship with him so that we can eventually go into heaven. And that's the subject of today's lesson. Looking at some of these replacement plans or replacement players, if you will, and see why they don't measure up to God's perfect plan for us. 
And I want to remind you of something that you should remember throughout this series in the book of Romans. And it helps put it a little bit into perspective is that Paul to the Roman church is presenting a legal argument. This is just like a lawyer that you see on TV or, or on some TV program who stands up and gives a closing statement and summarizes everything that happened in this case. He is now summarizing the entire gospel and, and even meeting the objections of many of the people through his words here. He started off in chapter 1 describing how the righteous can be righteous only through faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He then describes in, eight, in verses 18 through 32 humanity apart from the presence of God and how humanity apart from God will eventually slide into the worst evil imaginable. But now Paul is bringing it back home. Paul had that, that camera focus out there. Now he's bringing it back and looking on us. In essence, he's knocking on our door, plopping himself down into our spiritual living room, and starting to counsel us and show us a few things. And like a good attorney, Paul is presenting his argument in a way that his audience will understand. In Rome, most of the church, or at least the foundation people in that church, were converted Jewish people. They were people that came out of the, the Hebrew religion and in to Christianity. And so he starts toppling and challenging some of their deeply held beliefs that are holding them back from really knowing Jesus and really understanding everything that he did. And, and he's doing this to bring them into salvation. Now, as we're going to be doing throughout this uh, series in the book of Romans, we're going to be asking different people to read different parts of the Bible. And this week, Melanie has volunteered to read chapter 2 for us. So, Melanie, if you'd come up, stand at the lectern there, and, uh, and read for us chapter 2. I'm reading chapter 2 of Romans from the NIV verse. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things? Do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience? not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who, have, who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. 
All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who are judged, who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And in parentheses it says, Indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are the law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show the requirements of the law are written in the, on their hearts, their consciousness also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and other times even defending them. Parentheses. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name will be, is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has a value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you've not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not, not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as those who were circumcised? The, the one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who, even though you have the written code in the circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not of other people, but from God. Amen. Thank you, Melanie. I'll be asking um, other people to come up and read. You have a right to say no. I'm not going to force you to do it, but I'd like to see as many people up here as scripture readers as possible. So I'll be messaging you or calling you in the coming weeks to do exactly what Melanie did. And thank you, Melanie. That was beautiful. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for a lot of the harder teachings that are found within it. And this is one of them because it, it, strikes at our very nature of self-protection. It strikes at our very nature of even self-promotion. And, 
and judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. So I ask, Father, that you just mentally clear our minds, clear our hearts, allow your word to penetrate, allow it to challenge us, and allow it to change us this morning according to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Paul in this chapter, it's a, it's a longer chapter, and there's a whole lot to unpack here. Um, but don't worry, Melanie managed to read through about half the sermon, so <laughs> um, it won't be too much longer. So, we see a couple of different dangers that we can fall into when it comes to our faith. And the first danger that we're going to look at this morning is religious pride. And we see that in verses 1 through 4. Now, if we go back to last week, in the second half of chapter 1, Paul went through a series of steps that people and societies can go through as they fall away from God. And different ways that you can have a person one moment being a follower and a leader in the faith, and then all of a sudden the next moment you hear about them falling away from God and denying that God even exists. And But now, Paul, again, is starting to to turn this back to us. Because the enemy of our souls is not concerned about those people. He's not concerned about the people who have fallen away because they're already doomed, right? He, he doesn't have to put a lot of effort into them other than just blinding them to the fact that there is a way out of their condition. His target is on our backs. His target is on the church. His target is on the Christians. And one of the sneakiest ways that the devil gets in is through religious pride. And we can inadvertently teach this to our youth or to new Christians when they come into the church. And you say, well, how do we, how do we teach this? Well, we teach this by the way we, we act sometimes. When I was a, a new Christian, there was a lot of emphasis on what I can do and what and not do, where I can go and not go, or where I sh or activities I shouldn't be involved with because I don't want the world to soil me, and you know even to the point where it was I'm you know you should be really glad that you're AG and not Lutheran anymore because man you you don't they don't even know what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, or anything like that. And, you know, it could be worse. I mean, you could be a Catholic. Oh, you know? <laughs> this, is, this is part of the religious pride that we get into. And so you better avoid those people too, right? And those are just a few of the things that very well-meaning people here have told me over the years about how to follow. Our, our former pastor was, was very much into, I don't want to say into separation, but he was very much into saying, Others may do, but you may not, was one of his favorite sayings. When he would hear that we were, maybe it was going to a movie he didn't approve of, and he would call us all into the office, and we'd all have a big talk about this. And he said, well, you know, so-and-so over at First Assembly, they all went and saw it. And he goes, well, others may, but you may not. I'm your pastor. And you are associate pastor, and you will follow my instruction for you. He's the boss, right? So... It, people do those things, and, and they mean well when they do it. But what the, the trick is, where the enemy steps in, is that he uses that sometimes to create within us a sense of pride. A sense of, well, I don't do that kind of stuff. I must be better than you. And it's, it's very, very, very subtle, very, very sneaky way that the enemy 
can, can raise this up within us. Now, as Christians, we should represent the gospel. We should represent biblical values. I'm not saying that. But what we have to be careful about is becoming a modern-day Pharisee. I mean, after all, what did the Pharisee say about Jesus? Well, he can't be the Messiah. He hangs around with sinners. I mean, did you see the other day? He was, he was having supper with prostitutes in a tax collector's home. I mean, how can he be a holy man? How can he be somebody that God is smiling of? I mean, after all, he's a drunkard. He's always drinking. He's a glutton. He's always eating. He's seen more at parties than he is at temple prayer. And that's how the enemies of God saw Jesus. But let's be honest. Let's turn it back to us. How does the modern-day world often see the Christian? No fun. Of course, we have a different idea of fun than they do, but we're no fun. We're judgmental, holier than thou. And the world seems to know more about what we are against than the Savior that we're for. And that's what Paul is addressing here. In Romans 2, 2 and 3, when he said, when, So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? Now, what does that mean? That means we shouldn't be frightened to hang out with sinners. We shouldn't be so worried about our own sense of personal holiness that we fail to show love to a homosexual or a transgender or one of these people that are ripping up the cities right now. We should be willing to show them the same kindness, forbearance, and love that Jesus shows us. You know, a while ago, somebody at work told me that there was a person that was spreading rumors and talking behind my back. And it, it was just a bunch of false stuff and stupid stuff. And, and somebody told me, he goes, you know, you might want to check check this because you know she's saying all kinds of bad things about you and and all this and I just said okay and so the next shift that I worked with her I made sure I was extra nice to her I was I asked her about her college I asked her if there's anything I can help her with because I'm a year roughly about a year ahead of her in the nursing program and and doing all these kind of things and I was just really nice really kind made sure that she was you know, if there's anything that she needed during the shift, I would help her take care of it. And that same person that told me about it pulled me aside and said, you're not going to even deal with those rumor thing? I said, no. No. And I wasn't doing this to heap coals on her head or anything. I chose to love this person because you know what? Jesus does that for me. On my best day, in his eyes, I'm probably somewhat unlovable. If he holds up the standard of his word and applies it to me, I fall dismally short on my best day. Horribly short. But Jesus still loves me. He still supports me. He still encourages me. And he still chooses to call me his. You know, I saw a great bumper sticker about this once. You know, once in a while you see a good bumper sticker and it, it kind of changes your way of thinking. It said, don't judge me because I sin differently than you do. 
And I thought that's a great thought for us to have because when we're looking at people that might touch our last nerve, maybe we need to take that deep breath and ask God for help to love them anyway. So after religious pride, the second uh, danger or uh, replacement that we can fall into is presuming on God's grace. The key thought I want to point out here from the book of Romans is Romans 2, 5, and 6 that says, Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. In verse 6, God will give to each person according to what he has done. Paul is primarily addressing spiritual pride here again because that's where we just came from in verses 1 through 4. However, this applies throughout our lives, to presume on God's grace. And we also see this highlighted in the Apostle John's final letter to the churches in the book of Revelation. You remember the last letter that he wrote was to a church in Laodicea. The church of Laodicea was the rich church. This was the mega church. This was the, the huge um, the huge, big, rich church that everybody knew about. They were all about making sure that their economy was great. They wanted to make sure their city was great. They wanted to make sure their nation was great. Their church was great. In fact, they were so great that they boasted that they were rich and we don't need a thing. Kind of sounds a little familiar when you watch the news today. I think they were the first to embrace a prosperity gospel. But what did Jesus say about them? Wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And I want to focus on that last word for a moment, naked. I'm not talking about physical nakedness. We're not talking about becoming spirit or Christian nudists here. Everybody say, thank God. When the Bible speaks about spirituality and uses that word naked, naked means without the Holy Spirit. You see, God's plan for creation humanity was, to, was that humanity was to be the house or the temple that would carry the Holy Spirit. That was his original plan for creation. And we all know what happened. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, and then the Bible has that little, um, that little line in there that says, and then they realized that they were naked. Well, it's not obviously talking about physical nakedness, so something else had to be pointed or had to be um, being talked about right there. Now, when they ate the forbidden fruit, they sinned, and the Holy Spirit and sin cannot be together, so the Holy Spirit leaves them. If you remember in the book of Revelations, what does it say we're clothed with? Robes of white, right? I don't think these are physical robes. I think that these, the power of the Holy Spirit is on us to the point where it looks like he is clothing us at all times. And Jesus' death and resurrection makes that available to us again. In John chapter 20, Jesus breathes on his disciples and the Holy Spirit comes to indwell them. In Luke 24, Jesus tells them to wait until they have been clothed with power from on high. Jesus restored to all that believe in him the state of intimacy that Adam and Eve knew before the fall. 
But the people of Laodicea were described as naked, meaning they had no spiritual vitality, no connection with Jesus, and presumed that because they called themselves Christians, that they were fine in God's eyes. And one of the traps that we fall into sometimes as Christian believers is that we think that if we have earthly prosperity, that means we're spiritually healthy. That everything is okay. You know, it's one of my dad's strongest objections to Christianity is he's never needed it because he's been just fine throughout life. And it's a trap that many of us can fall into today in America. And there's a second way we can presume on grace, and that is to willfully sin without being sorry or repentant or trying to change that. And it's the most dangerous place for a person who calls himself a follower of Jesus Christ or a person who calls himself a Christian to be. Because you think you are fine, but in reality you're blind. The Bible is very specific here in Romans. You are judged by God as a Christian by what you do. Not what you intend to do. Not what you agree is the right thing. But what is act, you actually do. And that's why verses 12 through 16 make it clear. It's not just hearing the Word of God, it's doing the Word of God. It's about obedience. And I know obedience can be a dirty word in our time. But in God's eyes, it's central to a true and genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Now let me give you a little encouragement here. When, it, when, when you know, pastors stand up here and we say these kind of things, we think, man, he's just trying to make me feel guilty. Man, I, I come to church to be lifted up and I just get, feel like he's hammering on me or something. Obedience is something in the Christian walk that is learned. It is not something that is automatically given to you. In other words, just like a toddler child learns to roll, learns to roll themselves over eventually, then that toddler will push themselves up and then kind of quiver and go plop back down on their face. And they do all these kind of things that we smile at toddlers for doing. And they pull themselves up and they are able to stand there on little quivering legs and then fall on their butt. And they get up and try to do it again. Eventually they learn to, to let go and to kind of sit there and waver. And eventually they start taking small steps and sooner or later they're running throughout the house. The Christian walk is kind of the same way. Obedience to... Um, anyone here may not look like obedience that I have. Or my obedience may be small and compared to somebody out there in the congregation. It's going to be very individual as we mature in the Christian faith. What, the, what matters is that our heart is longing to pursue Jesus. And that we don't sit there and say, well, it's okay if I sin today because I'll just ask for forgiveness and God will forgive me and I'll just keep going. It means that, God, I really, really need you to take this away from me and, and, and convict me and change me from this. In both these instances, this prosperity mindset and in willful sin, we have to allow God to grow us up so we can act like adults in our faith. There's a third danger. It's a danger that probably not many people here have, but it's a danger that exists nonetheless. And that is thinking that nepotism matters. In other words, because somebody in the past was faithful that it matters for you today. 
Most of you know I came from Kenosha, and Kenosha is a, a huge union city. They, they have a, a giant building there, called, or two giant buildings, or two big buildings, called union halls, where the union members get together. And it was especially bad, and I, or especially um, obvious, I should say, when American Motors and Chrysler had their two giant car plants there. And one of the ways you could get a great job is by knowing somebody. If you knew somebody in the union, they could vouch for you, you'd get into the union, you'd have a job. A really good paying job. I mean, sweepers were making 25 to 30 bucks an hour. And this was back in the 80s. So that's, that was really, really good money. So this, these kind of um, connections is called nepotism. You're using a family connection for personal gain. And Kenosha was, it was huge about this back then. It was so bad that in my sophomore year of high school, we, have, we all had appointments with our guidance counselor. He met with all three or 400 people in our class throughout the year. And he would um, help us plan out our future. You know, if you want to go to college and you want to study this, you should take this, 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 and this in high school. And so I showed up, and I was kind of, an, I was, well, not even kind of, I was very much an underachiever in high school. Um, didn't get really good grades. I didn't care. The only thing I cared about is sports, drinking, and girls. And so he kind of looked at me, and he said, well, he goes, out of curiosity, do you know anybody that works at American Motors? I said, oh, sure. I said, I got aunts and uncles and cousins and neighbors and virtually I got, you know, dozens of people. My dad knows everybody there. And, you know, he goes, oh, good, good. I don't have to worry about you then. He goes, all you got to do is just talk to one of them, get you a job at American Motors, and you could sweep a floor and make more than I do with a master's degree. That was the power of nepotism back there. Unfortunately, the limitation of nepotism came apparent a couple years later when they closed the factory and 5,500 people lost their jobs. In verses 12 through 20, or excuse me, 17 through 24, Paul destroys the thought that just because you are a Jew, you automatically have a place in heaven. He addresses both nepotism and the thought that you can get into heaven by being just a good person. Today you see that, that kind of idea in the thought about karma, that if you're good outweighs the bad, you're okay. Well, Paul destroys that, that thought in verse 17 when he says, Now if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship with God, now just to stop just for a moment, he, he goes in, he, he establishes especially who he's talking about here, and he's going through the thought about be, that the Jews thought they were spiritual super people, and then he gets to the point here in verse 21. He says, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? Do you say, or you who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, it means to hate idols. Do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So two things that we learn from Paul. Number one, you will not ride any coattails into heaven except Jesus's. Jesus is the only person that will get you into heaven. It won't be your family name. It won't be that your grandfather, father, whoever laid the brick of this church or that your dad is on the church board or your grandma was the organist. 
It won't be any family connection that you have. It has to go through Jesus. You alone will stand before God and give an account. And just like Paul is being a lawyer here and, and trying to establish this legal argument, in heaven there are no legal tricks. There are no objections, Your Honor. There either is yes or no. And if Jesus isn't your only hope, you have no hope. And the second thing we learn here is never presume on grace. And when I say presume on grace, I mean take advantage of it. It means seeing God as a pushover and, that, and trying to take advantage of it. And he's just going to forgive you just because. I had a paramedic partner. When I first became a paramedic, I was partnered with a guy whose girlfriend constantly cheated on him. Constantly. He would knock on my door at 2 in the morning if we weren't on a call, and he'd say, hey, we got to go for a ride. I'd be like, what? Where? He goes, i got to go home. i got to see if somebody's over at my house. And I'm like, why do you tolerate that man? It's like, you're a man. For crying out loud, act like a man. <laughs> you know, deal with this situation. But he wouldn't. He would just keep forgiving her and keep forgiving her and put up with the abuse and, and all these kind of God. But let me tell you so something. God is not that guy. God, if you excuse the phrase, is the ultimate alpha male. He is the guy that doesn't even want you looking at someone else. He wants your attention fully on him because he is God. He is worthy. He is the source of everything you could possibly need. Now, God is also merciful. God is also gracious. God is long-suffering, and thank God, because I'd be dead a long time ago. I am thankful for all these things. But sooner or later, if you try to continue to take advantage of grace, he is going to say enough. You can't con God. You can't be too clever to get around this because any thought you're going to think, he already knew from eternity past you're going to think it. So you can't con him. You can't lie your way and you can't be too clever for him. Therefore, your only option is just be real. Be real with God. And we can be real with each other. You know what? He knows you struggle. He knows your every weakness. He knows what your besetting sin is. He knows. But what he asks you to do is submit yourself to his power. Submit yourself to his might. Submit yourself to his grace and his leading. And then you're going to start to discover you will gain victory over these things that try to lead you away from him. It leads us to the end here. The final answer. A little explanation before I read these verses. Circumcision was a rite, still performed today amongst many, uh, and it was performed among the Hebrews to their infant males as a sign that they were under the Abrahamic covenant and blessing. Now, it was very unusual, very unusual. There weren't very many people on earth or, or nations or, or religions that would, would go to this kind of extreme. And actually, calling people the circumcision was considered to be like a racial slur against the Jews. Now, just put that in the back of your mind when Paul gives a summary statement in chapter 2, because the Jews looked at that as like the ultimate sign that they were God's children. When Paul says in verse 28 that a man is not a Jew if he is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. 
And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. And what Paul is saying here is a way to God's heart is not checking the right spiritual checkbox on a form. It's because of your surrender to Jesus Christ. And through that, he removes that sinful flesh from around your heart and allows it to live again through the infilling of the Holy Spirit and his power. And only God can see inside you, even to that intimate space. And just like circumcision deals with the most intimate part of a man, the Holy Spirit deals with the most intimate part of our spirits. A heart that seeks and yearns for God's presence in all aspects of our lives. So I would just encourage you this morning, don't fall for any of these replacement players. This religious pride, this spiritual laziness, depending on your family name. Or thinking that because someone did something in the past that you've somehow earned your way to heaven. Instead, let's encourage each other and, and in our own minds set ourselves up to follow Jesus Christ with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. Amen?